Chapter Six, Part One of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Williams. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter Six, Part One. The Great Armada, fifteen eighty eight. Attend all ye who list to hear our glorious England's praise. I sing of the thrice famous deeds she wrought in ancient days, when that great fleet, invincible, against her bore in vain the richest spoils of Mexico, the bravest hearts of Spain. Thus Macaulay begins his stirring ballad of the Armada. The lines have helped to perpetuate a popular error one of the many connected with the story as it is generally told in our english histories it somehow became the fashion at a very early date to speak of the defeat of the so-called invincible armada of spain but the spaniards never gave their fleet such a name in the contemporary histories and in spanish official documents it is more modestly and truthfully spoken of as the gran armada the great armed force and by the way our very use of the word armada is based on popular ignorance of the spanish language and on the impression produced in england by the attempt of philip the second to make himself master of the narrow seas and invade our islands an armada is not necessarily a fleet it is an armed force an army either marching on land or embarked for service on the sea in which case fleet and fighting men are included in the word philip the second was king not of spain only but also of portugal and of the two sicilies ruler of other european lands and lord of the indies the sovereign of a widespread maritime empire in asia africa and america that had been won by hundreds of years of enterprise on the part of sailors and soldiers like columbus vasco da gama cortez pizarro and albuquerque the tradition of spanish victory on the sea was a proud one and as we have seen, Spain had borne a leading part in the latest of decisive naval victories, when the Turkish power in the Mediterranean was shattered at Lepanto. King Philip might therefore reasonably look forward to success for his great fleet, and if it could once secure the mastery of the Channel, the invasion of England might be regarded as no very perilous enterprise, for the Spanish infantry were the best soldiers of the day, and the Duke of Parma, who was to command the land operations, was one of the best and most experienced leaders in Europe looking back on the events of the wonderful year of the armada we must try to divest ourselves of the ideas of to-day and see things as the men of the time saw them philip counted on divisions among the people of england the event proved that he was mistaken but he had reasonable grounds for the view he took a hundred years later another fleet conveyed a foreign army across the narrow seas from the netherlands to change effectively the course of english affairs it found a divided people and the invading army was welcomed by a party strong enough to effect a revolution that was a new starting point in english history nor must we suppose that the policy of philip the second was directed entirely by religious views if kings were easily swayed by such motives there would have not been such difficulty organizing a league against the turk professor lawton in his introduction to the state papers relating to the defeat of the armada puts the matter so clearly that it is worth while quoting his words at some length it is not strange that the action of the fleet was for long misunderstood and that the failure of the spaniards should have been represented as it often is even now as due to a heaven-sent storm flavit deus et dissipati sunt was accepted as at once a true and pious explanation of the whole thing 
It was, too, a flattering and economical belief. We were, it had been argued, a nation peculiarly dear to the Almighty, and he showed his favor by raising a storm to overwhelm our enemy, when the odds against us were most terrible. From the religious point of view, such a representation is childish, and from the historical it is false. False, because the Spanish fleet, after being hounded up channel, had sustained a crushing defeat from the English, a defeat in which they lost many ships and thousands of men before they fled to the north childish because in affairs of state providence works by recognized means and gives the victory not by disturbing the course of nature and nature's laws but by giving the favored nation wise and prudent commanders skillful and able warriors by teaching their hands to war and their fingers to fight but in fact much of the nonsense that has been talked grew out of the attempt not unsuccessfully made to represent the war as religious to describe it as a species of crusade instigated by the pope in order to bring heretical England once more into the fold of the true church. In reality, nothing can be more inaccurate. It is, indeed, quite certain that religious bitterness was imported into the quarrel, but the war had its origins in two perfectly clear and wholly mundane cases. Professor Lawton then goes on to explain what these cases were. 1. The attempts of Drake and Hawkins to break the Spanish trading posts. The Spaniards regarded Drake and Hawkins as smugglers and pirates, and in vain asked Elizabeth to disavow and make amends for their acts. 2. The countenance and assistance which had been given by the English to the king's rebellious subjects in the Low Countries. The king was glad enough to put forward religious reasons as the motives for his enterprise, in the hope of thus enlisting new allies on his side, but, like so many other wars, the conflict between Spain and England, which began in 1585, arose largely from rivalry and trade. The Marquis of Santa Cruz, the same who had commanded the Allied Reserve at Lepanto, was then the most famous and the most trusted of King Philip's admirals. Santa Cruz urged upon him the advisability of attempting an invasion of England itself, as the only effective means of cutting off the support given by Elizabeth to the revolt of the Netherlands, and checking at their source the raids in the West Indies. In March 1586 he submitted to his master an elaborate plan for the operation. Santa Cruz's scheme was an ambitious project for concentrating the whole force of the Spanish Empire in an attack on England. Some five hundred ships, great and small, were assembled in the ports of the Spanish peninsula, and eighty-five thousand men embarked on them. Philip II thought the scheme too vast, and, above all, too costly. He substituted it for another plan, which was more economical. Santa Cruz was to assemble in the Atlantic ports of the peninsula a fleet of more modest proportions, just strong enough to secure command of the channel. This done, he was to cover the transportation across the narrow seas of the Spanish army that was already operating in the Netherlands, under the Duke of Parma. The army of the Netherlands would be reinforced with all the fighting men that could be spared from the fleet. This was, in its essential points, the plan of campaign of the Grand Armada of 1588. It was intended that the attempt should be made in the summer of 1587. It was delayed for a twelvemonth by the daring enterprise of Francis Drake, a memorable enterprise, because in proposing it he laid down the true principle for the defense of England against invasion. His policy was that of Edward III at Sluys, his principle that it was better to keep the enemy occupied on his own coasts rather than await him on those of England. On April 2, 1587, Drake sailed for Spain with only thirty ships, and surprised and burned the half-armed transports and store-ships collected at Cadiz for fitting out the armada. His dashing enterprise had made its departure for that year impossible. 
Before the preparations for the next summer's campaign were completed, the Marquis of Santa Cruz died, and Spain lost her best and most experienced admiral. King Philip put in his place a great noble, Guzman, Duke of Medina Sidonia, who pleaded in vain to be excused, frankly declaring to his sovereign that he felt unfit for such high command, as he had scant knowledge of war and no experience of the sea. It is supposed that the king persisted in the nomination because Medina Sidonia's hereditary rank would place him above the jealousies of the subordinate commanders, and he hoped to supply for the Marquis in experience by sending veteran sailors and soldiers with him as his staff officers and divisional commanders. By the middle of May, 1588, the Armada was at last ready to sail from the Taguz. In England there had been the wildest reports as to its numbers and strength. These exaggerations were repeated by the popular historians of the fighting in the Channel, and have become almost a national tradition. The Spanish galleons were said to be floating monsters, more like castles than ships. The fleet was so numerous that it hid the sea, and looked like a moving town. It seemed as if room would scarce be found on the ocean for so vast an armament. The glory of the English victory was great enough to need no exaggeration to enhance it but in sober fact there was no such enormous disparity as is generally imagined between the opposing forces large and small there were one hundred thirty ships in the armada the detailed catalogue of them from the list sent by medina sidonia to philip the second has been reprinted by captain duro in his armada invencibile and by professor lawton in his state papers relating to the armada from these sources I take a summarized table giving the statistics of the Armada, and then add some particulars as to various squadrons, ships, and commanders. Armada of Portugal. Ships, 12. Tons, 7,737. Guns, 347. Soldiers, 3,330. Sailors, 1,293. Total men, 4,623. Armada of Biscay. Ships, 14. Tons, 6,567. Guns, 238. Soldiers, 1,937. Sailors, 863. Total men, 2,800. Armada of Castile. Ships, 16. Tons, 8,714. Guns, 384. Soldiers, 2,458. Sailors, 1,719. Total men, 4,171. Armada of Andalusia. Ships, 11. Tons, 8,762. Guns, 240. Soldiers, 2,327. Sailors, 780. Total men, 3,105. Armada of Guipuscoa. Ships, 14. Tons, 6,991. Guns, 247. Soldiers, 1,992. Sailors, 616. Total men, 2,608. Armada of the Levant. Ships, 10. Tons, 7,705. Guns, 280. Soldiers, 2,780. Sailors, 767. Total men, 3,523. Squadron of Urcas, hulks or storeships. Ships, 23. Tons, 10,271. 
guns, 384. Soldiers, 3,121. Sailors, 608. Total men, 3,729. Patases and Zabras, small craft. Ships, 22. Tons, 1,121. Guns, 91. Soldiers, 479. Sailors, 574. Total men, 1,093. Neapolitan Galeases. Ships, 4. Guns, 200. Soldiers, 773. Sailors, 468. Total men, 1,341. Galleys. Ships, 4. Guns, 20. Sailors, 362. Total men, 362. Total ships, 130. Total tons, 57,868. Total guns, 2,431. Total soldiers, 19,295. Total sailors, 8,050. Total men, 27,365. Plus rowers in galeasas and galleys, 2,088. Grand total, soldiers, sailors, and rowers, 29,453. The first point to note about the Armada is that it was almost entirely a fleet of sailing ships. The new period of naval war had begun. There had been hundreds of galleys at Lepanto seventeen years earlier, but there were only four in the Armada, and none of these reached the channel. The long, low, oar-driven warship that for two thousand years had done so much fighting in the Mediterranean proved useless in the long waves of the Atlantic. The only oared ships that really took part in the campaign were the four galeasses, and in these the oar was only auxiliary to the spread of sail on their three full-rigged masts. The galeasse has been described in the story of Lepanto. It was an intermediate or transition type of ship. It seems to have so impressed the English onlookers that the four galeasses are given quite an unmerited importance in some of the popular narratives of the war, but the day of sails had come, and the really effective strength of the armada lay in the six galleons of the six armadas, or squadrons of Portugal, the Spanish provinces, and the Levantine traders. The galleon was a large sailing ship, but even as to the size of the galleons the popular tradition of history is full of exaggeration. Built primarily for commerce, not for war, they carried fewer guns than the galeasses, though many of them were of heavier tonnage. In those days every large trader carried a certain number of guns for her protection, but such guns were mostly of small caliber and short range. The largest galleons were in the armada of the Levant. The flagship, La Regazona, commanded by Martin de Bertendona, was the biggest ship in the whole fleet, a great vessel of 1,249 tons but she only mounted thirty guns, mostly light pieces. Compare this with the armament of the galeasses, and one sees the difference between ships built for war and galleons that were primarily traders. The largest of the four galeasses was only of 264 tons, the smallest 169, but each of the four mounted fifty guns. In all the six armadas of galleons there were only seven ships of over a thousand tons. There were fourteen more of over eight hundred, and a considerable number of under five hundred tons but the galleon looked larger than she really was. Such ships had high bulwarks and towering fore and stern castles, and they appear to have been over-rigged with huge masts and heavy yards. A galleon under full sail must have been a splendid sight, the bows and stern and the tall castles tricked out with carving, gold, and color. Great lanterns were fixed on the poop. 
The sails were not dull stretches of canvas, but bright with color, for woven into or embroidered on them there were huge coats of arms or brilliantly colored crosses, and even pictures of the saints with gilded halos. From the mastheads fluttered pennons thirty or forty feet long, and flagstaffs displayed not only the broad standard of the lions and castles of Spain, but also the banners of nobles and knights who were serving on board. But the tall ship, with her proud display of golden color, was more splendid than formidable, and the Elizabethan seamen soon realized the fact. Built originally for the more equable weather of the trade-wind region in the South Atlantic, she was not so well fitted for the wilder seas and changing winds of the North. She was, essentially, an unhandy ship. In bad weather she rolled heavily, and her heavy masts and spars and high upper works strained the whole structure, so that she was soon leaking badly. With the wind abeam and blowing hard, her tall sides and towering castles were like sails that could not be reefed, a resisting surface that complicated all maneuvers. The guns that looked out from her portholes were mostly small cannon, many of them mere three- and four-pounders, of short range and little effect. So small was the dependence the Spaniards placed on them that they carried only the scantiest supply of ammunition. The fighting method of the galleon was to bear close down upon her opponent, run her abroad, if possible, pour down heavy fire of musketry from the high bulwarks and castles, so as to bring a plunging shower of bullets on the enemy's decks, and then board, and let pike and sword do their work as they had done at Lepanto. These were, after all, the methods of the soldier, the tactics of the war-galley. It was the merit of Howard, Hawkins, Drake, and the other great captains who commanded against the Armada that they fought as seamen, using their more handy and better-handled ships to choose their position and range, refusing to let the Spaniards close, and bringing a more powerful, longer-ranging, and better-served artillery to bear with destructive effect on the easy targets supplied by the tall galleons. It is worth noting that while there were more soldiers than seamen in the Armada, there were more seamen than soldiers in the fleet that met it in the narrow seas. If the Armada had a commander whose only merit was personal courage, the admirals of the various squadrons were all men of long experience in war, both by land and sea. Martinez de Racalde, the second-in-command and admiral of the Armada of Biscay, was a veteran seaman. Diego Flores de Valdes, the admiral of Castile, was an enterprising and skilful leader, and if his advice had been taken at the outset there might have been a disaster for England. Pedro de Valdez, the admiral of Andalusia, had sailed the northern seas, and Medina Sidonia was told he might rely on his local knowledge. Moncada, the admiral of the Galeases, was a first-rate fighting man, and de Leva, the general of the troops in Bart, who had taken command of the Rata Coronada, a great galleon of eight hundred tons in the Levant Armada, showed that he was sailor as well as soldier. The Duke of Parma, who commanded the army that was to be embarked from the Netherlands, was counted the best general of the day, and his thirty thousand Spanish regular infantry were the most formidable body of troops then in Europe. His orders from the king were to build or collect a flotilla of flat-bottomed barges to ferry his army across the straits under the protection of the Armada, and for months thousands of shipwrights had been at work in fishing ports and creeks, canals and rivers along the coast between Calais and Ostend. The Dutch rebels held Flushing and the mouth of the Skelt, and they had a small but efficient fleet ready to do good service as the ally of England, a fact often overlooked in our popular stories of the Armada. Parma had proposed that he should attempt to reduce Flushing and obtain command of the Skelt, as a preliminary to the enterprise against England. The Armada could then run for the Skelt, and make Antwerp its base of operations. But Philip was impatient of further delays. 
though the best of the Spanish admirals were against him, the king insisted that the Armada need only run up channel and obtain temporary command of the straits to enable Parma to embark his army in the flotilla even from an open beach. In the king's mind, the necessity of destroying the hostile sea power as a prelude to any scheme of invasion was disregarded or was not understood. On the 30th of May, in fine weather, the Armada at last sailed from Lisbon. The report sent back to Philip II by Medina Sidonia, as the fleet passed Cape Finisterre and stood out into the Bay of Biscay, told that all was well. But a few days later, a storm for the Atlantic swept the sea and partly dispersed the Armada. The storeships held on till they sighted Scilly Islands, and then, finding they had parted from the fleet, turned back. Into the northern ports of Spain came scattered ships that had lost spars and sails, some of them leaking so badly that only hard labor at the pumps kept them afloat. Medida Sidonia, with the main body, made for Coruna, where he ordered the stragglers to reassemble. On 19th of June he wrote to the king, reporting his arrival. Then he sent letters betraying so much discouragement and irresolution that one wonders he was not promptly relieved of his command. He proposed that the whole enterprise should be abandoned and some means found for arranging terms of peace. He reported that the fleet had suffered badly in the storm, that there was much sickness on board, and that large quantities of provisions had gone bad and must be replaced, and that the ships were short of water. Instead of dismissing him from the command, the king wrote to his admiral, ordering and encouraging him to renew the attempt. The ships were refitted and provisioned, and drafts of men collected to replace the invalided soldiers and sailors. Early in July the armada was again ready for sea. The news that King Philip's great armada had been beaten back by the wild Biscay gales reached England when the whole country was in fever of preparation for resistance. A commission of noblemen and gentlemen had been appointed to set down such means as are fittest to put the forces of the realm in order to withstand any invasion. The Lord Lieutenants of the counties were directed to be ready to call out the local levies, which formed a roughly armed and mostly untrained militia. Garrisons were organized in the seaports, formed of more reliable and better equipped men, and a small force was collected at Tilbury to oppose landing in the Thames estuary. Faggots and brushwood were piled on hilltops from Land's End to Berwick to send the news of the Spaniards' arrival through England by a chain of beacon fires. The best of the Queen's advisers, men like Lord Admiral Howard of Effingham and such experienced seamen as Hawkins, Drake, and Fenner, realized and succeeded in persuading the Council that it was on the sea, not on the land, that England must be protected from invasion. Their letters in the Armada State Papers are full of practical lessons even for the present time. While insisting that the main effort must be concentrated on the fleet, they did not disregard the advisability of subsidiary preparations on land in case of accidents, but Howard insisted that a few well-trained men were worth fourfold their number of irregular levies, and wrote to the Council, I pray your lordships to pardon me that I may put you in remembrance to move Her Majesty that she may have an especial care to draw ten or twelve thousand men about her own person that may not be men unpractised. For this she may well assure herself that ten thousand men that be practised and trained together under a good governor and expert leaders shall do Her Majesty more service than any forty thousand which shall come from other parts of the realm. For, my lords, we have here six thousand men in the fleet which we shall be able, out of our company, to land upon any great occasion, which being as they have been trained here under captains and men of experience, and each man knowing his charge and they their captains, I had rather have them to do any exploit than any sixteen thousand men out of any part of the realm. 
The fleet, from which Howard of Effingham was ready to land these trained men if necessary, was even more numerous than the Armada itself, though the average size of the ships was smaller. On the list there appear the names of no fewer than 197 ships, ranging in size from the triumph of 1,100 tons, Frobisher's ship, down to the small coasting craft. The flagship, the Ark, or Ark Royal, was a vessel of 800 tons. Contemporary prints show that she had a high poop and forecastle, but not on the exaggerated scale of the Spanish galleons, and that she had four masts, and was pierced with three tiers of portholes for guns, besides gun ports in the stern. She had a crew of 270 mariners, 34 gunners, and 126 soldiers. Contrary to the system on which the armada was manned, the seamen in every ship of the English fleet exceeded the soldiers in number. The Ark carried no less than forty-four guns, namely four cannon, sixty-pounders, four demi-cannon, thirty-pounders, twelve culverins, long eighteen-pounders, twelve demi-culverins, long nine-pounders, six sakers, six-pounders, and six smaller pieces, some of them mounted inboard for resisting boarders at close quarters. This was an armament equaled by few of the Spanish ships, and the fact is that the English ships, as a rule, were better armed than the Spaniards. But few of Howard's fleet were of heavy tonnage. There were only two ships over one thousand tons, one of nine hundred, two of eight hundred, three of six hundred, five or six of five hundred, and all the rest less than four hundred tons, many of them less than one hundred. But though the English ships were smaller than the Spaniards, they were better at sailing and manoeuvring, thoroughly handy craft, manned by sailors who knew how to make them do their best, and who were quite at home in the rough northern seas. The main body of the fleet under Howard of Effingham assembled at Plymouth. Detached squadrons under Lord Henry Seymour and Sir W. Winter watched the Straits of Dover. Some of the captains thought Plymouth had been unwisely chosen as the station of the main fleet, pointing out that a south or southwest wind, which would be a fair wind for the Spaniards, would be a very foul one for the ships working out of the long inlet of Plymouth Harbor. End of chapter 6, part 1 Recording by Sarah Williams